0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your borough purchase at burrowcom ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrowcom ACAST. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators.
0: Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing? It is podcast time. Strange podcast, John. Unbelievably shocking stuff coming out of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you can follow probably, <coughs> John, by the way, keeps very, very odd hours. So he's probably <coughs> up in the middle of the night watching this thing. I
2: was. I've been watching it. And I know it was a week ago now, but on on the Wednesday night when the Security Council were... The UN Security Council. The UN Security Council were, in turn, berating Putin and Russia and pleading, pleading, pleading with them. And uh, in the middle of it, as they're watching it, the first troops entered. Unbelievable. It was really unbelievable. And I have to say, since then, I, I don't know, I'm incredibly... Like, there's been a lot of conflicts over the years, you know, from the Iraq wars to Afghanistan, To the the whole shebang, Syria and all the rest. And, you know, we all hate war. It's shocking. It's awful when you see civilians being murdered and slaughtered and being moved out of their homes and their countries and all that kind of stuff. And we're always up in arms about it. But this, in particular, has really, really angered me.
0: But at the same time, I feel helpless. Well, it's an interesting one. I, I think I don't think anybody listening is gonna feel anything except complete accordance with you, right? Yeah. What is I think to analyse this from the economic, geostrategic, geopolitical point of view, I think it really is when a when a big country like Russia invades a smaller country like Ukraine with absolutely no pretext. What it does is it actually clears a lot of the fog around the nature of autocratic regimes. Because up until now, let's see, for the last two or three decades, we've kind of been, the world has kind of been playing a game of wishful thinking with itself about Mm. the true nature of these type of regimes, like Putin's regime. Yeah. And we're prepared to do business with them. We're prepared. I mean, I travel to Russia lots of times. I mean, if you love all things Russian, the literature, the culture, the history, the people, the music, and more than anything else, the impact of Russia has had on the world. You have to hate everything that Putin stands for because it's such a contrast. And I think that this is a, just a moment of, to wake up, it's a, it's a moment of clarity. I don't think the world's going to be the same afterwards. No, no, I think, think you right. What it has done <laughs> is it has suggested are indicated to us, the West, that we can't really have our cake and eat it. That sometimes you've got to make choices and sometimes you've got to stand up and sometimes you've got to realize the true nature of things. And the true nature of this is these autocratic regimes, and there are many of them around the world, have been kind of tolerated as being almost like in a parallel universe to us, but Mm -hmm. they're not. And it's obvious to me that Putin has two strategies here. One is in Ukraine and the other one is in Europe. And we're going to talk to Martin Sanbu of the Financial Times, yeah, yeah. who is a very brilliant Norwegian economist, and he's always writes very lucidly and with great alacrity on issues. So I'm looking forward to talking to Martin about this in, in a couple of minutes. But what strikes me is that Putin has two ideas. One is the subjugation of Ukraine. But by doing so, it's also the clear threat to the EU. It's a clear threat that we... If you don't stop us, and we don't think you will try, yeah, that we're just going to poke you, and our whole agenda, Putin's whole agenda, is to so humiliate the EU, to undermine the EU, to try and drive coach and horses through the EU, and basically say to the particularly the Eastern Europeans and the Central Europeans, right, that Russia's still here and it's still a big threat. And by threatening Central Europe, he continues to be a player on the world stage and he continues to be a menace. Mm. And I I just don't think, I think that now it's a moment of clarity. We now know what side everyone has to be on and you have to make choices.
2: Absolutely. I think so. And I think what what brings it a little closer to home for us is the fact that, you know, in previous conflicts like Afghanistan, Iraq, blah, 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 always seem so far away. Oh, yeah. Yeah where ukraine isn't that far away it is part away. of europe and the ukrainians are very
0: much like us yeah no absolutely and that is that is one of the, the odd things is when the, when the people are like you you tend to have a totally different yeah so it's I, I, but i also think there's there's something going on here which is that it's important i think for us to reframe the whole idea that it's not just i mean again for irish people because when they talk about it's NATO, you know, he's worried about NATO. We can mm. kind of sort of other that and say, well, we know we're not part of NATO. But I think that the key is he's against the idea of the EU. And the idea of the EU is states on their own, willingly, mm. through democratic means, cooling their sovereignty, turning their back on, you know, blood and guts nationalism, undertaking to live in harmony together. It's all warts and all. There's problems with the project. But the fundamental idea yeah. is incredibly liberating. And it's the idea that he hates more than anything else. This is why there are thousands of Ukrainians in Ireland. Thousands, right? Yeah. And thousands of Russians in Ireland and thousands of Lithuanians in Ireland. And the reason they're here is the idea of how to live here is better. They're not emigrating to Russia. Yeah. You know, yeah, they're, they're actually going west. And so the people are voting with their feet. And that's what he despises most. And I think that, you know, ideas can be very powerful and... At the moment, it's, it looks as if brute force wins, but there's a very interesting story from the Tehran Conference, 1943. Oh, go on. Tell Tehran us. Conference, 1943, Stalin is sitting down with Roosevelt and Churchill. At this stage, they're trying to plan the second phase of the Second World War. The Sorry, can I just
2: interrupt you? Why
0: was it in Iran? Because that was a neutral zone and it was very, very far away from right. anywhere, right? Okay. Uh, the final conference was in Yalta, ironically, in the Crimea, mm. right? Very, very close to where we are now, right? Because Yalta was where the Russians always went yeah. on their holliers, right? Down by Sochi, where the... Yeah. the yeah. Uh, but there's a fa- a very, very fascinating exchange between Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin. And Roosevelt is saying to Stalin, after we beat the Nazis, because they knew they were going to beat them, yeah. after we beat the Nazis... What sort of Europe are we going to create? And one of the questions that Roosevelt suggested to Stalin was Can you or will you undertake to make sure that worship, Christian or any religious worship, is going to be upheld in the Soviet countries that you're yeah. going to occupy? And Churchill said, uh, Interjects, maybe we should consult the Pope, right? Because right. he's the leader of this massive Christian community. And Stalin looks up...
2: As in the Pope in Rome or the... Pope the, in Rome, the Pope right, in Rome, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Because as, a, as opposed to the Russian... The
0: patriarch, the patriarch. metropolitan, the yes. metropolitan, yes. which is a great... Yes. Right, right. But Stalin looks at Churchill and dismissively says, the Pope, how many divisions does he have? Right? <laughs> and what he's meaning is, where are his tanks? Okay? Yeah. Now, at that moment, the idea was that Stalin believed, like Putin, in just simple brute force, right, and brute force was sufficient to justify everything. And if you don't have divisions, I don't care about you. Yeah. But what he misunderstood was that the power of ideas, this is when I come back to the EU, right, the power of ideas is much more potent than the power of military.
2: Yeah.
0: Because you cannot suppress ideas. Yeah. You cannot suppress hope. You cannot suppress people's perceptions of a better life, or you cannot suppress things like religion or sets of rules where way people uh, guide themselves. And the fascinating thing is in the history of Soviet Union, The Soviet Union collapses, and this is what Putin's trying to resurrect in some shape or form, Mm. right? It collapses in 1990, but the process begins about 14 years earlier, or maybe 12 years earlier. Yeah. One in Afghanistan.
2: Right, yeah. With
0: the Musha Hadim. Yeah. And 1982 with Solidarnosc in Poland. Yeah. Solidarnosc in Poland was a Catholic uprising backed by the Pope.
2: Yes, of course. And the
0: Mushahideen was an Islamic uprising. So here you have two massive ideas, religious ideas that you cannot suppress. And they ultimately, it wasn't that Reagan and Star Wars destroyed the Soviet ability to compete. What actually happened was the Soviet army was beaten by an Islamic jihadist army, driven by a different ideology yeah. and a different idea. Yeah, And in Poland, what the polls showed the rest of the Central Europeans is you can rise up in solidarity against these people and you can have a bigger idea. And this is where I think Putin is wrong. He's going to lose in the long run because his idea is that tanks always win. Like Stalin's idea was tanks always win. How many tanks does the Pope have? How many Mm. divisions? But in actual fact, the idea of Europe is much bigger than him.
2: But it's interesting looking at not just religious ideas but you know really deeply held beliefs in their country and looking at Zelensky, who i think has turned out to be an inspiration actually come with the hour
0: come with the man
2: absolutely and by the way i just want to say this as well take the opportunity in last week's podcast that we did on on russia we actually recorded prior to the invasion and I actually made a, a few jokes about Zelensky and I subsequently edited them out because I felt they were inappropriate. But that man has really stood up and has been counted.
0: Well, he's amazingly brave. I mean, you know, the so-called he-man, the macho man, Putin, yeah, is in some bunker somewhere in the Kremlin, hiding, <laughs> yes. surrounded by his military men, whereas Zelensky's on his todd. Yeah. with a mobile phone and a gun yeah. walking around the streets of... And making great speeches. Making amazing speeches and keeping his people calm and keeping them patriotic and keeping them optimistic and saying we can win this. I mean, it's an extraordinary communication. And again, that's what happens, is the true nature of people comes out. And that's why I come back to the idea that this is a moment of clarity. You have two yeah. types of individuals. You have Vladimir Putin. Let's reduce it to the individuals. You have Vladimir Putin on one side, representing simply the forces of darkness. There's no doubt of this. Yeah. And you have Vladimir Zelensky, the former TV presenter, former stand-up comedian, representing hope. And that's the difference. Yeah. So, John, let's explore this idea about Europe in a little bit more detail, because I think it is actually the fundamental issue here. Yeah. It's about the threat to an idea, and it's a battle of ideas, as well as a battle of the military. And I'm going to talk to Martin Sanbu, who you remember we did a cartoon with. We yours. did, yeah. He did an animation with Martin. He was at Kilconomics a few years ago. I think he was even at the Doki Book Festival a couple of years back. All around good egg, Norwegian economist, writes for the Financial Times. And let's go and talk to Martin. Martin Sanbu, great to see you again. Let me just, before we talk about sanctions, economics, Ukraine, NATO, the EU, all that stuff, your own family are half Ukrainian. Your grandparents are Ukrainian.
1: Yes, qu- quarter Ukrainian, I would count myself. So I I take a very personal interest in this. I mean, I've only been to Ukraine once, but my grandmother was from eastern Ukraine. Uh, she was taken to Germany for slave labor during the Second World War. My grandfather was from Poland and was taken to Germany for slave labor during the war. They met there in uh, forced labor. The other side of my family is Norwegian. I grew up in Norway, but I've had contact, especially with Poland and a little bit with Ukraine uh, throughout my life. So I take a very personal interest in, in what is going on now. And uh, I know very well that Ukraine is its own nation. And my God, how they're fighting.
0: Yeah, they are. They are. And I mean, it's uh, I mean, again, what I'll say to all the listeners is this. This is not a news program. Uh, the events may well have changed by the time uh, this goes out. Uh, But Martin, let's talk about Mr. Putin's tactics, his strategy, what has led him to this. You wrote very recently that it's not about NATO, it's about the EU. Explain that to me.
1: Yes, you know, of course, NATO matters. It's not that. But we have a lot of people in the West have bought into the premise coming out of the Kremlin that this is all a reaction to an unreasonable expansion of the NATO military alliance. And I think we should go a little bit back to what happened in 2014, which was, of course, uh, the first time uh, Putin sent his forces to invade Ukraine. He invaded Crimea and he, in practice, invaded these uh, breakaway statelets, rebel statelets in the east, uh, the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Um, That was in 2014. And that was his reaction to the toppling of uh, his puppet in in Kiev, uh, Viktor Yanukovych. And that toppling happened, you will remember the amazing demonstrations in, in Kiev, people dying because they were shot at, waving EU flags. And the reason for that was because uh, there had been a, a, a question of whether, you, whether Ukraine should sign a trade agreement, an association agreement, it's a bit deeper than a trade agreement, with the EU. So Yanukovych was meant to do it. Then he pulled away under Russian pressure. The demonstrations happened. Yanukovych was toppled the new government signed this deal and uh, Ukraine has been integrating economically with Europe since then. And what I argued in that piece you referred to is that we should see how much this is actually a threat to uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, vision for that region of the world and Russia's role. And that's because we have to understand that integrating with the EU is in, is in many ways much more powerful than becoming a member of NATO. Of course, NATO has these security and military implications. But you know, it was going to be a very long time if Ukraine would ever really join NATO in for for real. Inspiration was there. There was a a sort of, not quite a promise, but an open door. EU integration, much more realistic. And also, I think, therefore, actually much more dangerous to Putin's regime. Why? Well, partly because integrating into the EU is not just trade relations. With that comes a whole set of rules, a way of doing things, a way of organizing a state and an economy, rule of law requirements, as we know, that's obviously being fought for inside the EU at the moment as well. We saw the whole thing, same thing in the Brexit debate. Even economically, the EU collaboration is about common sets of rules. And these sets of rules are not compatible with, with the way Vladimir Putin runs Russia and the way he would like to see his neighboring states, Belarus, the Ukraine and so on be run. So there was a very deep incompatibility there. It was very logical for Putin to want to stop uh, the westward economic orientation uh, of Ukraine with the EU.
0: So what you're saying is the Ukraine's made a choice. It's like you've got the the Russian approach to economics, to statehood, and oligarchy. Let me stop
1: you for a second, David, I, I don't want to call it the Russian approach because we, we really need to be very careful not to conflate the country and the people okay. and the culture of Russia. With so, Putin regime. So the Putinist, if you like, model of the state versus, uh, versus the, 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 European.
0: the Brussels model of the state. Yeah, if you like. Now, let's look at the Ukrainian economy. I went to Ukraine many, many, many years ago working for a French bank, BNP Paribas, long, long time ago, late 90s, early 2000s. And at the time, there was a suggestion that because Ukraine was this huge agricultural power, that it would fare pretty well in the post-Soviet world. It hasn't done so. What was going? On, what is going on there? What has to go on there? I mean, I know it sounds weird to talk about the economy just now when there are bombs raining down, but just this idea of what choices did they make?
1: Well, I, I think it's very important to talk about the economy. And one fact, economic fact, stands out in my mind. In, in 1989, Poland and the Ukraine were similar in terms of national income per capita, about $10,000 by today's uh, today's dollars, today's counting. 30 years on, Poland is trebled, I think, roughly its income per capita. Ukraine has is stuck where it was. 30 years, zero growth. The reason is, well, it, it's a common story in many resource-rich countries. The resources were partly plundered. A lot of this has to do with governance. Extremely corrupt state, succession of corrupt governments, basically running the economy into the ground and simply uh, capturing the great values that were there, but without developing them and without sharing them with the population.
0: And so moving towards the EU is part of the process of trying to decriminalize the economy on the part of the people, would you say?
1: I think that would at least be an effect. You know, when Yanukovych was considering this, I don't think that was his plan, but I think uh, in practice, integrating with the EU means accepting a lot of EU rules, and, and more so when you are on the outside trying to integrate than once you're already inside and have voting rights and so on, as Hungary and Poland show. And the EU knows this, and that's why they're imposing these things. And And transparency, the rule of law, fair competition, all of these things are at the same time good for economic growth and bad for corruption, right? So, So these are good things to have. Apart from that, of course, there would have been, and there has been, a change in the actual economic orientation. One thing I pointed out in that piece was that since 2013, one year before uh, all those events, Ukraine exported about the same amount of exports to Russia and to the EU, 25% of total exports. By 2019, right before the pandemic, the EU share had risen to about 50%, and the Russian share had fallen to under 10 Of course, that had to do with the military conflict as well. But trade integration happened. You know the trade association agreement worked. They've had visa-free travel to the Schengen area uh, since 2017, and now I understand Ireland has, uh, has, has joined to give visa-free access to Ukrainians. That too, has meant you've had a lot of Ukrainians traveling easily to Europe, to back and back and forth, or to, to the EU. I should say Ukraine is Europe. You've also had a lot of residence permits issued, especially in Poland. You know, so there are more than a million Ukrainians live and work in EU countries. That all matters, right? That starts with, it, with sure. the economy. you're absolutely right. Job. But people, and the Irish, of course, know this like, like any other nation. That creates human bonds. It creates cultural alignments. It creates friendships. These are very important things. They change countries. I mean, the other thing, of course, is can we compare divisions and weapons uh, with uh, economic forces? I mean, that's really the sort of thing we're we're watching playing out. The West, well, they are sending weapons, but they're not going to fight with the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are fighting on their own, fighting bravely. But economic forces matter too over time. You know, you can win a war militarily, but, you know, if you can't make a country function, and that is largely about economics, then you're not going to win whatever peace follows after. I mean, Afghanistan is testimony to that, right? So at some point, economic forces will again matter in Ukraine. And of course, what we're seeing these days is the EU, together with the US and the UK, exploring how much damage economic weapons in themselves can do. I'm thinking here, obviously, about the sanctions against Russia. We are seeing seeing a sort of step change in the kinds of sanctions that are being considered. You know, we'll see what happens when this when this this podcast goes out. But at the moment of talking to you, there's uh, you know Putin and Lavrov have had personal sanctions imposed on them there's serious discussion of disconnecting Russia totally from the international bank transaction system called swift it's possible to inflict devastating damage on Russia without firing a shot and we are seeing in real time how much that can influence uh, a war
0: let's just talk about the eu and the end game here because if the if Putin's end game is to undermine, humiliate, belittle the EU, which I think it is, try and inflict damage on the EU, try and see where the EU is fracturing in the sense: will the Italians break from the Germans, are the Germans more exposed in terms of their gas imports, etc. So he's, he's obviously playing a game. Where? What do you think his end game is with respect to the EU? Because I think once Europeans hear it's all about NATO, they kind of breathe slightly easier. But if we say this is actually about the EU, it means it's against all of us. What do you think his end game is?
1: Well, let's think about what the two have in common. They're about European unity, originally West European unity, but most of the former Soviet bloc has joined into that model of international organization and how Europe should be run. So it's it's about let's call it European unity today, not just western unity. So it's the old game of divide and rule. Uh, you know, there's a counterpart or the the the, 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 the goal of Reimposing something like the old, you know, the Russian Empire, the Soviet sphere of influence—call it what you want—but rule and control from Moscow over the entire eastern part of Europe, if not beyond. I mean, that is there, and the flip side of that is dividing and thereby weakening those who want to oppose it, and that means all of Europe.
0: I mean, do you think he'll stop just at Ukraine? I mean, if I were in Lithuania now, his working assumption is, you know what? NATO ain't going to fight, even for some of their own members. They're too rich. They're too divided. It's too much of a shock to them. You know, fighting a war in Europe is a huge shock to Western Europeans. To what extent do you think Ukraine's just the start?
1: Look, I see Putin as, uh, you know, the the same sort of person you see in from, from playground bullies to mafia bosses, right? They will take what they want until they are stopped, until there's serious pushback. I think the first countries we should worry about are the other edge states that are not in NATO. Belarus has effectively been annexed. It's been used as a launchpad for, for this invasion. Moldova already has a, a breakaway rebel statelet that is... This Transnistria part. place. Transnistria, exactly. So again, if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, Moldova... I would say is gone and then of course we come to the nato member states i do think that there's a very big line being crossed if there were to be an outright attack on a nato country so i think nato would make article 5 which is this collective self-defense article work the thing is that uh, Putin and his regime are very good at various sort of hybrid threats, various things that kind of don't quite reach the threshold. And, and remember, just in the last week before the outright invasion of Ukraine, we constantly debated in, EU, in the EU, in the US, you know, what, what is the trigger? For yeah. These big sanctions we were supposedly keeping up our sleeve, right? What is the trigger? And and all of this, of course, just leaves the field open to finding ways that are just under the trigger, things that aren't easily defined as a proper trigger, yeah, as a causes uh, belly sort of thing, goodness, right? And hybrid warfare, information warfare, all of these things could be helped to wear down resistance and basically weaken the eastern flank of NATO.
0: So, Mark, just on the on the issue of sanctions, there, explain to me exactly what Swift is and why banning Russia for SWIFT would be so much more detrimental than other forms of sanctions?
1: Yeah, very good question, because SWIFT is one of these geeky things that can turn out to be very, very important and very powerful. SWIFT is a messaging system. It's the address system for banks to do cross-border transfers. It, it, the way I like to think about it is that it's a bit like IP addresses on the internet. You know, your computer gets an IP address so you can send messages that find their way to other computers. Yeah. This is how we are now talking over the over the internet. If you didn't have an IP address, it would be, well, it would be possible to send messages over the internet. Swift is not the same as the banking system. You know, if you're cut off from Swift, if two banks manage to find each other, they can still try to to carry out transactions so in in one sense swift itself is a little bit of a red herring the question is is the west willing to cut russia off from its banking system totally swift cutting off swift is the easiest way to do that you still need to have you know to make sure that people don't find other ways but you could also just sanction all activities uh, all transactions with russian banks you could uh, freeze all the assets that you can get your hands on of the uh, the russian central bank you can stop access to foreign exchange trading venues. Uh, you can stop access to uh, clearing. this is you know, how transactions are settled through any Western institutions. There are many things you can do. Swift is, if you like, politically a little bit of a of a shorthand, I think, of the big political decision. are we going to cut off the Russian economy totally in financial terms? Once that decision is made, you know, whether it's exactly through Swift or some other means, that's a little bit technical and it's basically logistics. The political issue is, should we cut off all financial transactions to the extent of our ability between Russia and Western countries? That can be done. The effects would be devastating. It would, of course, have a lot of collateral damage. You know, Ordinary Russians would not be able to make transfers in and out. They would not probably get hold of their bank deposits in foreign currency, which many Russians have. Uh, you can very easily see, certainly from Ireland's vantage point, you can very easily see how that could cause both a very deep recession and even panic if the banks stop working. All of these are things that the West can inflict. And I think SWIFT is a bit of a shorthand uh, for that weapon.
0: And can we satisfy ourselves that we know the answer why not?
1: We know why not. Uh, It's because there's a, a political decision to be made, especially in Europe, but also by the U.S., about whether to continue to buy Russian gas for Europe, Russian oil for the U.S. Because if you can't pay, they're not going to sell you anything. If there's no way to get money to Gazprom, you're not going to get that gas. So the political choice of whether to cut them off financially has to follow the political choice of whether we in extremists can do without Russian energy. That obviously comes at a cost at home. We have seen the political problems coming from high energy prices, which it now seems natural to think may well have been a planned strategy from, from on Putin's behalf, starting up in the autumn to to soften up the uh, European publics in a sense, which means that leaders in the West, in my view, have to make very clear that this is a sacrifice we have to make to support Ukraine, the risk that energy prices will get higher still and stay high for some time. Of course, try to find whatever substitutes there are, try to help those at the sharp end of high prices, the, the poorest people who can least afford to bear them. But that's the political decision that has to be made. If we make that political decision, it's pretty straightforward to make the political decision to cut off Russia financially, and SWIFT is simply a consequence of that then.
0: Martin, we, we, we started by talking about your Ukrainian family and your connections there and, and the, the economy and all that sort of stuff, but I want to talk to you now in your position as a Norwegian citizen, because one thing that fascinates me is the way in which there is a similarity between Norway and Russia, and it is both are blessed or maybe cursed by having found enormous amounts of mineral resources, oil, gas, et cetera. However, the way in which both countries have treated that says a huge amount about the relationship between the state and the citizen in both countries. And we were talking for the last little while about a way of thinking about how you organize the state. There's the Putinist one, and there's the European, Western European one, at least the Brussels-based one. Explain the difference between the way in which Norway has spent its windfall and Russia has spent its windfall. And maybe that is much more illustrative of the way in which power is exercised by both countries.
1: I think you put your finger on an extremely important point. As you will know, and the economists listening uh, will know, uh, there's a concept in economics called the curse of natural resources because the pattern is that pretty much every country that discovers large amounts of oil or minerals ends up worse off for it, poorer, uh, more corrupt, often more prone to violence and and warfare. Norway is an exception in that regard, an exception that confirms the rule, perhaps. It found oil in 1969, by which time Norway was, of course, already uh, not a super wealthy, but a well-established democracy, strong institutions, egalitarian society, high trust between people, and so on. And the success in managing that oil wealth came in two phases. The first was that the administration of the oil sector itself, the oil industry, the national oil company that was set up, all of that was done without allowing a corrupt state within the state to be built up in a way that often happens in poorer or, or less institutionally well-equipped resource-rich countries. And there's a wonderful story about this, actually, because some of that is, uh, has to be credited to a, a young Iraqi. who was a, a refugee with his Norwegian wife from from Bath, Iraq, He was an oil engineer and came with much needed expertise and helped to design the way the whole system would be would be run administratively. So if you're interested in that story, Google the Iraqi who saved Norway from oil. It's a a piece, a feature piece I wrote for the FT magazine a couple of years back. The second phase was that once we were talking about serious income. The Norwegian government decided to set this aside in an oil fund to save for future generations and not let all this income flood the domestic economy, as happens in so many countries. So the oil fund was set up in the mid-90s. It has now grown to about a trillion dollars. Very volatile, of course, because a lot of it is invested in in stocks. Norway, through this fund, owns close to 2% on average of every listed joint stock company in the world. It's
0: extraordinary. So it's, a it's extraordinary. figure
1: for what, 5 million people. Um, so I think that's about $200,000 per, per head if I haven't got my zeros wrong. But I think w- what, what is really fantastically interesting with this and, and brings it back to where we started is that a lot of this is really due to very boring factors that have to do with a bureaucracy, rules-based administration, transparency, all these things about a rules-based order for the economy that we talked about at the start which is not how autocracies are run they are run on the discretion the whim of the people in power at all levels
0: yeah the sort of the the bully and plunder model as you call it
1: you know exactly whereas the very boring you know you called it the brussels model but it's really rule of law and liberal democracy as it should be you know it's, it doesn't always work perfectly it doesn't work perfectly anywhere but the idea that decisions are made in a transparent democratic way with efficient checks and balances by competent, impartial bureaucrats, you know, everything that makes Western countries more boring (laughs) than others, all of those things turn out to have hugely beneficial economic effects, and those economic effects, in turn, have good political effects. And, And that is really the choice of social and economic model that we're talking about, and that is also now playing out very violently in Ukraine.
0: Just before you go, are there any oil oligarchs in Norway?
1: no there are some people who have got very rich on the sort of supply industry you know supply ships uh, rig sure. building but actual
0: one. but actual you know resource capture by one individual or a group of individuals just never happened
1: there's been a huge capture of the resource by the state of norway which has stakes in all the oil fields which of course runs a lot of it through its 67% owned uh, state oil company equinor it's called now used to be called statoil The state has captured the rent rather than oligarchs or foreign companies. And the state has itself not been captured by anyone, but remains well run, democratically controlled, uh, transparent, on the whole, run by a political class acting for the benefit of the majority.
0: Martin Sandbu, we'll leave it there. That was brilliant stuff. Listen, Martin, that's fantastic stuff, Martin. Listen, I will talk to you again soon. And uh, thanks a million.
1: It's that time of the year
0: Good skin, Martin. He's, he? he's great. He's really good. Did you hear the kids in the background screeching?
2: <laughs> he, apparently, <laughs> he was, he's a clatter load visiting he, at the moment. I
0: think he, he had a kids sort of slumber party. <laughs> and he was like, shh. <laughs> Other oh, Ukrainian kids and Norwegian kids. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah.
2: But what I thought was really interesting mm-hmm. talking about the EU and that as an ideology, is that strong enough? Or an idea, really. Or an idea, okay. Yeah. But is that strong enough to withhold... This kind of pressure from Russia and possibly China in the future—and definitely China in the future—it'll
0: have to be. And this is what Ooh. I say. This is what I say. <laughs> it's not very, very sure. No, but no. What I'm saying is again the idea. You cannot suppress ideas like freedom, liberty, equality—the aspirations towards, not yeah. the actual—the aspirations towards, which is what the EU stands for at a fundamental level. But—and this is a big but this is a wake-up call that ideas need to be protected. People need to be protected. And without American military power, these ideas are unbelievably vulnerable to people like Putin. And that, I think, is the wake-up call. And people are going to choose sides. You know, it's quite interesting in Ireland, you know, there's kind of the anti-imperialist left, which makes complete sense, right? Yeah. They were siding with Putin at the start. They were believing all the... Russian propaganda, they were saying this is all America's fault, this is all NATO's fault. Well, can I- and now I think you think, okay, what side are you on? No, but I, I think
2: it, I, I completely accept that, but you know, people couldn't help thinking about the sexed up documents and the weapons of mass destruction and all that kind of. Yeah, but that's kinda,
0: yeah, but that's kind of I know I take that point, but that is the what about it. I mean, yeah, right yeah, now we yeah, have a situation is, yeah. where one country has invaded another with no pretext. You're absolutely right about the Iraq war. I mean, I think both you and I were walking, protesting against the Iraq war yeah. here, right? So, you know, that's something that we've both been on the same side of. But I do think right now the world is a very black and white place. Yeah. And you've got to take a side just a quick message. Listen, thank you so much to all our Patreons. We couldn't do this without your support. And if you fancy supporting us, I'm getting all sorts of fantastic gear, economic courses, tutorials, reading lists, all that jazz. Follow us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.